My name is Alyssa Robinson, and you're listening to the Treach Podcast. Justin Berenger is my special guest on this episode. On top of being a pastor, consultant, writer, editor, and PhD candidate, he also wrestles with depression and anxiety. Justin opens up about his experiences with depression and gives us great ways to support the people we love who have depression or anxiety. He also participated in a virtual roundtable hosted by Reverend Doug Meyer, and you can watch that at tmumc.org wellness. I'm going to go ahead and jump straight in because I got to, uh, I had the privilege of sitting in the virtual roundtable uh, with you and other people who have experienced depression and anxiety and getting to connect with each other on stories. But I'll be upfront and say, I am a person who I have never experienced clinical depression. And I have had maybe one anxiety attack in my life where I just got overwhelmed. But on a grand scale, this is just not something that I'm familiar with or understand entirely. So for people out there who are like me, How do you explain depression and anxiety to someone who hasn't experienced it directly? I was talking to my wife about this very thing last night, and uh, the the metaphor, the the simile I used was, it's kind of like trying to explain the color red to somebody who's been blind their whole life. It's it's really difficult, but I, I want to attempt to by saying this. I think most people have had an experience uh, with grief, with loss, whether that was the loss of a loved one or, you know, uh, loss of a job, those kinds of things. And, and you know, most people know that deep sense of hurt and grief internally. But the thing about depression is that it's that feeling, but without any recognizable tangible reason that one can point to. So for instance, in my story, um, over the past few years, as I've been struggling again with, with severe depression, I look at my life and everything's going well. I, I'm an academic and I've, I've been doing all the academic things. I've, I've been publishing. I've been winning awards. I even won a major national fellowship that that was huge. I uh, have so many opportunities to speak. I love the ministry I'm a part of. My family's amazing. And I could go on and on just about if someone were to just look at my life, even when I were to look at my life, I recognized that everything's going well. And yet here I am curled up in my bed, crying, feeling completely hopeless, and having no idea why I feel like that. Hearing all of that, it still, it feels like one of those things that unless you've experienced it, you're never going to get it. You're never going to fully understand. I can't empathize with you in any way, but... Man, what what have people who are like me who maybe haven't experienced this directly, what are some of the things that we can do to be helpful 
when you're experiencing clinical depression, anxiety, when we see a loved one that we care about starting to exhibit some of the behaviors that you've just described to us, what can we do and what should we not do? Yeah, I want to start with the the what folks should not do because I think folks that often are well-meaning um, but who don't understand this will say things like, well, God does everything for a reason or everything happens for a reason or they just kind of say, well, why don't you just decide to, to get over it or, oh, it's all going to be fine. All of these kinds of, of trite um, sayings that we say to one another, often we say them because we're not comfortable with um, dealing with other people's pain. And that this isn't true with just mental health. This is this is true in, in many other ways. When, the things we say when we don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and frankly, I think the best thing to say when you don't know what to say is nothing at all. What helped me and what what I've found in talking to to many other people um, over the years who also suffer from a variety of mental illnesses is having people present. And that seems overly simple, but when when Lazarus dies, Jesus is there and he just weeps with the family. Even though Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead, he sits with them in their grief and he weeps. And so being present is is extremely, extremely helpful. Another thing that has been important for me is having a community that has advocated for me when I haven't been able to advocate for myself. I mentioned this in the roundtable discussion, but... Um, I had uh, difficulty getting an appointment, as is often the case in in mental health care. Um, And at SMU, where I'm a student, I was having trouble getting into the health clinic for for a psych eval. And I was I was suffering bad. I was I was in an incredibly broken and dark place and, and just desperate. And one of my professors um, said, give me 30 minutes. And that professor, I don't know what they did. I don't know who they talked to, but 30 minutes later, I got an email saying, here's your appointment, your appointment time to come in for your psyche eval. And so she advocated for me when I wasn't able to figure out how to advocate for myself. My wife has done this as well has has when i when i was too anxious to search for treatments she got on the internet and she did all the searching for me because she knew i got overwhelmed by it in any way that you can advocate for folks who you feel like might not be able to advocate for themselves either because they don't know what resources are available or because they're in too dark of a spot to even be able to seek out help. Well, and I want to come back to it in a moment, um, your family support and how your journey through depression and anxiety has impacted your family. But before I get to that, I just want to ask, you know, why 
is it so difficult to get help? And I understand, you know, I can play the role of advocate, but all of the hoops that you were talking about jumping through in mental health care and trying to get an appointment and trying to get on the right medications and all of these things, why is it so difficult? I wish I could speak to that precisely. Um, it, it comes down to some major systemic issues um, within the American healthcare system broadly, but especially in mental health care, because mental health care is still something that is stigmatized. It's still something that folks don't understand. Um, and so even someone like me, who's, who's, who's well-educated, who, who has connections and resources, as I was trying to advocate for somebody um, a year or so ago, I was just frantically making phone calls on that person's behalf and found out that in Dallas, there's only one mental health emergency ward in all of Dallas. On top of that, for folks who who don't have um, education, who don't have privilege and, and, and access otherwise, folks who are uh, formerly incarcerated, folks who are living on the streets, these kinds of things, um, it's, it's almost impossible to find help. And then once you finally find help, if, if you're able to do that, then maintaining that help in a system in which um, so many folks are honestly burnt out because they're overworked and they, they started wanting to help folks, but they become disillusioned by that system. It, it becomes very difficult to not only find that help, but then to continue it. And so something I want to throw in here that I think is really, really important is that for folks who, who look especially at, at, at uh, economically marginalized people, um, so panhandlers, things like that, folks who might ask you for money, there's, there's this refrain I often hear among Christian folks, well, I don't want to give them money because they're going to go buy alcohol or drugs with it. And, and while on some level I can understand that, on another level, I know that in the depths of one's despair, if you can't get proper help, there's such desperation that you'll turn to whatever can help you. Rather than judging them, I think it's, it's really important that we think about why it is that they might be seeking out alcohol or drugs or sex or some other thing because the pain of life for them, as it has been for me at times, is so unbearable that just any bit of release seems worth it. Even if you know that in the long run, it's going to hurt you more. It's just the pain is so extraordinary. And so I, I want to just encourage folks, and this, this is especially pertinent for churches that, that have uh, resources. Um, we need more mental health care options. And this is something where the church can really step up. 
I think it's great that we hire pastors. I think it's great that we hire people who do stuff like this, who put together podcasts and and do tech stuff. But I wonder why it is that so few churches have actual credentialed mental health care providers on their staff. We need to have these kind of things so that when that person comes and asks us for money and we might get to talking to them and we find out that they're hurting, we can then point them somewhere to at least get started on the road to getting help. And so I've made it a point in my life over the last, I don't know, three or four years to really just get on a soapbox and just say, church, we need mental health care. Most, many pastors, many of the people that, that you hear preaching every Sunday are struggling with anxiety. They're struggling with depression. They're struggling with other kinds of mental illness that you may never know about. And certainly people sitting around you in the pews, people at your, your places of employment, people at your schools, there's people all around you who are, are suffering from mental illness. And it's, it's incumbent upon the church to really start thinking about how can we make there be access. Well, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about your family dynamic and them as a support system, but also what is the impact that depression and anxiety has had on your family and, and how do you talk to your kids about this? Yeah, one of the things that I I often most lament and like in my, my good moments that I'm most sad about is that mental health is not just my issue, that this affects my wife, my two kids, this affects my friendships, this affects my ministry at the church. Uh, I'll focus on, on family for a minute. So effectively what this has done when I'm in my low moments, which aren't often just moments, they often last for days or, or weeks at a time, they've, they've gotten better as my medicines have been um, finally, I've gotten on some of the right meds and everything. But even so, they've effectively made my wife a single parent for for long periods of time. And not only does she have to then become a single parent to our actual children, but she more or less has to parent me as well because I become totally incapable of the most basic things, of, of making sure that I eat and drink, making sure that I I. I bathe and take care of myself like she has to step in and do that kind of stuff and make sure that I'm doing the little things that I can to take care of myself like forcing me out of the house to go on a walk or and so this has been an incredible strain on her and I feel I feel unbelievably blessed to have a partner who who has just taken this all in stride. And 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 like you, she doesn't really understand it, but she's never needed to understand it to be supportive. So you ask about how I talk to my kids, and that's been one of the most difficult things. I have a, a now eight-year-old and a six-year-old, but when this all started... Uh, it, this most recent sort of episode, ongoing episode started like three, three and a half years ago. Um, 
my son at the time, you know, was around five and he, he understood the concept of germs. And so the best way I could talk to him about it was that daddy has germs that sometimes make him feel really, really sad. And when he's so sad, he doesn't know how to be happy again and how to be a good daddy and how to be available and and so I that was the best way I knew how to express that to him was that I had something in me that just kept making me sad and so you know being in his little five-year-old mind you know he's like oh well you know medicines medicines take care of germs so daddy why don't you take medicine and and I'm like, why I am taking medicine. I'm trying to find the ones that help me because some of them do and some of them don't. And now as he's older, he's and as he's sort of experiencing some similar stuff, thankfully not not as bad. And thankfully, we were in a place to recognize what was going on and have some resources to, to get him some help and continuing that process. But now as my daughter's growing up, I'm having to sort of explain that to her. Like the other day, I'm sitting in my recliner, which when I'm having bad days, what I often do is I isolate and I sit in my recliner and I watch TV. And and that's a real good indicator to my wife that I'm not in a good place. But my daughter came up and she asked me, Daddy, can you go outside and push me on the the swing? And I, I just had to say, no, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. I don't know how to explain to you why I can't, but daddy just doesn't feel good right now. And, you know, of course she got a little upset because she really wanted to. And and I desperately wanted to be able to get up out of that chair and go push her on the swing. And I just, I couldn't like with all of the, the might in me, I couldn't get up and just go push my daughter on the swing in our backyard. And so I try to talk to them as much as I can and just remind them that I'm having a hard time, that I'm sick and that it's okay to be sick and that daddy's doing everything he can to get help and that mommy is, is helping. And, and, and if, if you need something that daddy can't do for you right now, mommy will, mommy will do that for you. She will, she will help you out. Um, and then during our bedtime talks, um, it sometimes comes up if I had a bad day or something where I will just talk with them while I, I rub both of their backs before bedtime and and I'll just tell them, you know, daddy had another bad day and I'm still trying to get better and, and someday daddy's going to be better and I'm going to be able to do all the stuff with you. Go to your soccer practice and go to your gymnastics and and do all of these things with you that that I really, really want to do. And then also finally letting them know that this doesn't have anything to do with anything they've done. Because sometimes one of my reactions when I'm feeling really anxious in particular is that I get angry quickly. And so I tend to snap at them more than I would um, typically. And... And so I often now have to go back and apologize to them and and have a conversation with them about how they didn't do anything that was particularly wrong or any, you know, bad. And and I'm not really mad at them that 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 was daddy just having a bad time and a struggle. 
And so there's lots and lots of conversation in our household. Um, I talk to my wife at least several times a week just to update her. I send her a Facebook message probably about every other day just saying, here's how I'm doing today. Sometimes it's kind of a warning, like, I'm having a bad day. So when you get home, you know, you can just be aware. Um, and that also then means I'm the one who typically in our family for, for our, our whole marriage has cooked. And so I'll have to send her a message and say, babe, I just can't, I can't bring a meal together tonight. Can you pick up pizza or can you cook something, you know? And, and so I'm constantly just trying to communicate with her and let her know where I'm at. And then final thing I'll say about that is that I'm, I'm learning to try and express my gratitude um, to her because she didn't have to choose to keep doing this for me. But, you know, she made that, that marriage vow, that, that sickness and health thing, and she's proven it over and over again that that she's here and so I'm trying to start not only saying that I'm grateful but trying to do things when I'm able to express that whether it's little gifts or, or planning some kind of you know family event or you know um, just doing anything that I can to let her know how much I appreciate her and same thing with my kids, trying to just let them know that I love them deeply and I'm so grateful they're in my life and and the joy that they bring me um, and, and just appreciate that and make my appreciation known because I know that this has been just an unfair burden on them that they just absolutely don't deserve and yet it's our reality that we still have to continue to deal with. well and it's it's very clear to me that you have a level of self-awareness that only comes from doing the work and doing the work for years uh, because you did not just wake up one day and all of a sudden you're able to communicate clearly with your wife, hey, these are my needs today. Um, there might be a lot of women listening to this podcast episode, hearing the way that you describe, you know, sometimes I'm short with my kids. Sometimes I'm in my recliner and watching TV and I can't get up and maybe recognizing those tendencies in a man that they love and care about. And I wanted to get an understanding from you. I feel like our society treats men who are experiencing depression and anxiety differently, and it makes it harder for them to claim that this is what they're experiencing and I need help. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like with all of the pressures of what it is to be a man in our culture to be able to get to the point of self-awareness that you are today? I think in some ways I'm trying to unlearn what it means to be a man because so much of what I was taught about what being a man is just doesn't look anything like Jesus. And 
so a lot of it is is an unlearning process but there's there's a there's a definitely and we know this uh Kristen Dumez's new book uh, Jesus and John Wayne is is become really popular that that details out how uh this this kind of what we call toxic masculinity and I'm aware of just even putting toxic in front of it I don't even know if we need that just conceptions of masculinity seem to be mostly in and of themselves toxic um but her book and others have just really pointed out that this is a widespread issue and it's an issue that not only is a problem in American society as, as well as many other societies as, as most societies around the world are patriarchal um, but how this plays out in American culture just just even thinking about um, uh, let's say mass shootings those when's the last time we heard a news story about a, a female committing a crime like that right there, there there's something about masculinity um a friend of mine stan goff also uh wrote a book um called Border. oh no it's not borderline i can't remember the name of it right now but he wrote a book in which he basically said that men have been taught to be conquerors and in his book he focused on two things that men are taught to conquer women through sexual conquest and we're taught to conquer other people through war or or violence uh, maybe on a more local scale and um i think that that is that is a great um assessment of the reality um that men as conquerors aren't taught or given opportunity to be weak to whatever weak might be perceived as but there's there's just um something about the way and I've even noticed this in the way that I sometimes treat my kids differently how I can be more harsh with my son than I am with my daughter even though I have an awareness of these things some of this is still ingrained in me in such a way that I have to recognize that and and pull myself back when I have been more harsh for him or with him for showing emotion than I have with my daughter. And I can say, even though I was extremely fortunate, I grew up in a family um, in which it was acceptable for men to cry. My dad, my dad uh, is, is sort of the epitome, if you want to picture, you know, American masculinity. He's a country boy, he's a biker, a trucker. Um, he looks the part, um, and yet, even to this day, 20-some years later, after his parents died, whenever he talks about them, when we talk about them, he gets choked up, and I, he's never been embarrassed to cry in front of me, and I never felt like I couldn't cry in front of him or, or other people for that matter. Um, my wife will tell you that I'm, I'm the emotional one in our relationship. Um, I, I cry probably about half the time I preach. Um, but even with that, even with growing up in a place where that was acceptable in my home, so much of the society around me still, you know, inculcated me with this idea that that's not acceptable. That it's, it's okay for me to get angry, 
I can I can do that. I can get angry and I can cuss and I can throw things and 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 that is somehow okay. But if I say, man, I'm really hurting right now and 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 I'm feeling weak and I I don't think I can go on um then there's so much of our culture that views that as somehow an aberration or something that makes one less of a man, you know, whatever idea they have in mind. And, and one other thing that I want to note about that is that suicide rates among males is is skyrocketing. And it's already um, a, a massive issue. I think, Justin, one of the things that is so... Um, illuminating in and of itself about you is that someone listening to this podcast who hears the energy, the exuberance with which you speak, all of the things you mentioned earlier, working towards your PhD, you're really, you know, driving and, and getting after your goals. Someone would listen to this and think, man, I just can't imagine that this is a guy who deals with depression and anxiety to the point that he can't get out of his chair or can't get out of bed or, you know, all of those things. We have all of these stereotypes in our head of what depression is supposed to look like, sound like, all of these things. What are some myths about depression and anxiety that you want to dispel? Wow, that there is no, there's no picture, there's no one picture of mental illness. Mental illness can be the, the, I saw today a guy on, on the street as I was driving to my own mental health care treatment who was standing there having a conversation with nobody. And, and, and so that is easy to recognize and notice, but that's not the face of mental illness. That's one face of mental illness. And then there's my face and there's your pastor's face and there's your friend's face and your mom's face and your granddad's face. There's all kinds of people who are suffering from this. And so if there's any myth that really needs to be dispelled is that we can nail down in any kind of way who it is that does and does not suffer from mental illness. I'm sure there are plenty of other myths that, that could be addressed as well, but to me that seems most important is just the simple recognition that there are almost certainly people in your life who are suffering from mental illness. And I think it's, it's the responsibility of folks who are not suffering from mental illness as well as, as folks who... Who, who are, but who have been able to cope with it well, who have made it through sort of to the other side, even though in a sense there's never fully making it to the other side, that it's our responsibility to recognize those folks in our lives and to reach out to them as gently as we can, but to say, hey, I'm here. I want to help and I, I can help. And I'm a safe person for you to talk to. So I think that all of this information was so helpful. And I'm so appreciative for your time, for your willingness to open up and share a piece of your story. But also, you know, you didn't call, you said you're not a prophet, but you speak prophetically about, you know, 
calling the church to arms and what we need to do to, it's not just enough to start these conversations. It's a good start, but we've got to do something and we've got to help people. And so thank you for pushing us and challenging us to step into that. So I'm so thankful to, to, to Treach and, and for you and the others involved in this because you're getting conversations started that frankly in a lot of congregations most places haven't been started and should have been started a long time ago and so i can't express my gratitude to y'all enough for making this happen and hopefully helping open the eyes of folks um, both those who are suffering through mental illness and those who can be companions and help and friends to to folks who are suffering that there there can be hope but that hope rests in a community uh, of the people that God has provided us with. Um, that, that it's not and it can't be just somebody's solo journey and battle. It has to be one in which friends and community help out or folks end up turning to those super unhealthy coping mechanisms or in, in the worst case scenarios end up committing suicide. And I, I just so badly want to see folks who are hurting find relief. And I trust so much that the Holy Spirit has brought the church together precisely so we can bring relief to hurting people. I mean, if, if the church, if the followers of Jesus are not bringing relief to hurting people, I'm not really sure why we don't just become some other kind of social club. Because as I look at Jesus, constantly he was going around and he was healing and he was being with folks and he was providing relief and comfort, even to the point where he was willing to give up his life for others and I, I wonder then what it looks like as we talk about this idea of journeying and advocacy maybe it cost us giving up significant portions of our life for a year or two or three to support just one other person and I think that if that is what it takes there's no question in my mind that it's absolutely worth it and it speaks volumes, it bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the gospel hope that we have. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. For even more resources on mental health, please visit tmumc.org wellness. Have a great day.